1: Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my special guest is Jeff Kendall-Weed. So Jeff has worked in the mountain bike industry for more than a decade for multiple brands, including Lezyne, Ibis, and WTB. He's also a well-known YouTube video producer, a rad rider, and advocate for the sport of mountain biking. When he's not traveling, Jeff is based in Bellingham, Washington, where he lives with his wife. Thanks for joining us, Jeff.
0: Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here, Jeff.
1: Yeah. So let's get started with how you got started. How'd you get into mountain biking?
0: That's a good question. As a kid, I always wanted to literally ride a dirt bike. My neighbor had some old XR 400 or something and built jumps. And as the school bus would drive by his house, (laughs) I would always see him and he sent it pretty good. So that was like, man, I want to do that. And the closest I could get to that was taking my sister's bike at the time and building jumps in the driveway and sending it. My parents always said no to a dirt bike. <laughs> and then after a while, they eventually said yes to a BMX bike. So started racing some BMX and just riding dirt jumps, and I was never very good at all. And then um, a few years after the BMX started, a good friend of mine took me out on a mountain bike ride on a loaner bike, and I had a blast. It was super fun. That might have been 1996 or so. Okay. And I grew up right by the SoCal Demonstration Forest outside of Santa Cruz. Like, I could ride to it from my parents' house as a 12, 13-year-old. Nice. So, yeah, I would just always, basically, I started riding mountain bikes whenever it was too wet and rainy to ride BMX bikes. So, for about six or seven years there, I only rode in, like, the soupiest, sloppiest conditions, but, (laughs) and then rode dirt jumps whenever it was dry out.
1: Nice. Did you do any racing back then or was it all just for fun?
0: You know, it was predominantly for fun. The BMX racing was just for fun. I was not, I took like five years to get through intermediate class. I was so bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mountain biking, though, I, I had fun with it. I did the Grant Ranch cross country race a bunch. Did the sea, I went to sea otter like every year because we had family friends that would go. And yeah. it's so close. It was kind of like the big to do. I raced solemn a couple times, cross country a few times, and it was fun, but it was just like, Back in those days, it was junior 12 to 18, and when you're 12 years old, racing against dudes with beards that showed up in pickup trucks, they drove themselves. It's Right. Yeah, yeah. So I was always just so off the back. I never took it serious, but I I found some video footage from, I think, Sea Otter 98 or 90, maybe 97, something like that, and I threw it in that little About Me video I I uploaded the other day on my YouTube channel.
1: Oh, cool. Did they even have video cameras back then?
0: (laughs) My dad definitely did.
1: (laughs) Cool. So you eventually then got into a little bit more serious racing. Tell us a little bit about your mountain bike race career.
0: Well, I was heading down to school at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo. So I was 18 years old. This is 2003, and I always like I knew San Luis had some BMX riding, but it was pretty well known for mountain biking. So and I kind of had an idea that as I got older, I'd be more into mountain biking because going and riding demo forest. it was all a bunch of older dudes that were riding there. And <laughs> I was like regular age for BMXers, so it just seemed like what you do. You get done riding BMX and you get a <laughs> big wheels and a squishy fork, and that's the that's the whole transition. So I kind of thought I'd, I'd go that way. And yeah, I showed up there, went to a, the first week of school. Actually, before I even went to school... I was at the dirt jumps and there was a dude on a mountain bike who was actually jumping through everything and not riding like kind of a goon, which was uh-huh. a lot of the mountain bikers back in the early 2000s would hit the jumps kind of goonish, I guess you could say. <laughs> but he was riding super well, like, like totally knew what he was doing and he was super nice. And he's, he's like, yeah, when you come down to Cal Poly, you should come to the Wheelman club meeting. I'm the president. Oh. And sure enough, he's not the president. <laughs> he ended up being one of my best <laughs> friends for the next 10 years or whatever. And uh, I was like, buddy curtis if curtis is listening what's up curtis (laughs) so anyhow i went to the club meeting and sure enough that guy was there but he was definitely not at the front of the meeting (laughs) and everyone was talking about the race season which was starting in a couple weeks so i i went out to the race course for a volunteer work day to kind of check everything out and the courses looked pretty cool and i went out for the race the next weekend or whatever and I borrowed someone's downhill bike and just took a run down the downhill course on a legit downhill bike. And I always kind of thought full suspension bikes were for like software engineers that <laughs> had just started like people that had like a lot of money and hadn't really ridden much at all. So I dentists. Yeah. So I mean I was this feisty little BMX kid with a chip on my shoulder, so I had <laughs> I had that perspective going into it. And so I'd kind of written off full suspension bikes entirely and thought the sport was cool, but It was like, yeah, I guess that's what you do. And then it was like, what? This is rad. (laughs) So I couldn't believe how fast you could go and how much control you had and just the stuff you could get away with. So, yeah, I ended up winning the beginner race that weekend and uh, went to every single collegiate race that I could from then on out. That was 2003 and, like, went through the collegiate ranks that year. The next year, did got on the podium at Collegiate National Champs in Pennsylvania in the downhill course. That was sweet. Mm-hmm. And just started racing Norba stuff as soon as I could. I think I raced a Big Bear in 2004 and Mammoth 04, maybe even Deer Valley 04. Gosh, that's, that's a long time ago now, 15 yeah. years back. Wow.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: But yeah. And then it just kind of snowballed out from there.
1: Yeah. That's really cool. I mean, did you think about any of the other disciplines? Like was XC on your radar or, I mean, it seems like that was kind of bigger back then. Or did you, did you know right away, like I'm going to do, do more of the gravity side?
0: Well, you have to be good at climbing to be good at cross country. So <laughs> that was the problem. I, I love racing cross country. I still love it. And I still predominantly ride cross country for lack of a better term. I mean, cross country to me is riding up a hill and back down it. So, right. Yeah. I I loved racing XC because it was like a two hour long BMX race where you're just passing people the whole time and getting into it. But Mm -hmm. when you have this BMX background that like elbows are okay and a little bit of contact is normal. And a lot of (laughs) mountain bikers don't have that mentality at all. Right. That got a little bit interesting, but, um, I love cross country, but I just was not, I did not have the genetics for it to do it at a a high level.
1: Right. So when you graduated from school, did you go right into like Racing full time, or did you uh, get a job in the industry first?
0: Oh man, I never had a chance to really race full time, and that's probably a good thing thinking back to it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I was always on like an absolute shoestring budget, like literally dumpster diving for bike parts, racing on borrowed loaner stuff, just doing all I could to actually spend more time riding and less time working some job to afford a better bike. I just, I always knew that in the end, more time on the bike would be. More, it was more important to me to be a good rider than to have the latest, greatest stuff. Yeah, And so I had to skip quite a few races because I just didn't have the money to go. Oh, man. And that was fine. Like, you know, just do more skills training at home. Mm-hmm. And uh, so through school, I was hitting the races that I could. But that was also when the U.S. racing scene was really dying out. And there were somehow there were more races on the East Coast than on the West Coast, hmm. and trying to get to those fly-in races on a yeah. broke college kid. But no way, <laughs> right? <laughs> I could barely drive to Los Angeles to race a Fontana event like more than once or twice a year. So yeah, yeah, I, I wasn't racing a, a huge ton, but I was racing when it was close and local. And then 2008 was when I graduated school. The economy just—I had been working. A couple different jobs, so I could actually afford a dirt bike. Mm-hmm. Once I got done with school, so I worked three jobs for like six months to afford a fifteen hundred dollar YZ one twenty five. Wow, <laughs> yeah, I I was pretty broke, and uh, after about six months at LaZine, that we were right around July two thousand eight, and the economy was just tanking. Yeah, and I remember the owner cut all of our hours down a ton, and I just could no longer afford to actually like go ride my bike or ride my dirt bike. I was the other jobs. I was writing for some newspapers mm-hmm. and doing wedding videos and those were fine, but they were like very part-time jobs. Yeah. And I just needed to change. I needed to kind of start my career life or whatever. And so I, I had to leave the design thing. I just couldn't afford to stay there working super duper part-time. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so that was a very short stint at Lezyne, but it was good. I learned a bunch. And then you know, I spent like a really hard six months or so looking for a job, having zero like professional career experience and not wanting to like be a barista or anything, like wanting to do something pretty legit. I wanted to use my degree. And then a friend was familiar with the Ibis crew and introduced me to him and um, got an interview and that went really well. And then I kind of got in there doing odd jobs in the end of 08.
1: Oh, nice. Cool. So yeah, I mean, that's, that seems to be a lot of people's career path. I mean, obviously you have to have a lot of passion for the sport and you got to really want it because it's not—it's not a given. It's hard to—it's hard for a lot of people to break in.
0: Yeah, man, it took me a whole bunch of work, and I, I'm so lucky for that opportunity. And I'll forever be thankful that you know. I remember being so empty-handed going down for that job interview, and it was just like our super rainy day. And I'd been looking for—I had a half dozen other interviews in Silicon Valley, and just all was swung out. It didn't help that I had like long hair and. <laughs> <laughs> you know i'm like 22 23 and like i'm competing against people in their 30s and 40s who have been working for 10 15 years so yeah yeah i was pretty demotivated and i thought that was that was such a good opportunity they gave me and that's why i'm still so stoked to be riding for ibis i mean those guys really were the first ones to say hey here's an opportunity so I'll always be thankful for that
1: yeah, that's awesome. Well, during that time, like when you were looking and then once you you know started your career, has who's like kind of inspired you to go on that path and who's inspired you sort of along the way?
0: That's a really good question. So, you know, there's a lot of bike industry in the Bay Area. And as a kid going to Sea Otter so much, I kind of saw quite a bit of it. I did a couple of shop rides at the bike shop from in Los Gatos, California, and I remember seeing like Francis from MTBR out. I kind of didn't really know who he was, but I knew he kind of what the deal was with MTBR and like that was his job as this website thing. And I remember seeing the guys from Voodoo and Titech, Tech, kind of the same company back in the day and with Bontrager and Santa Cruz and so the president of IBIS to this day is the ex-president of Thai Tech, And Thai Tech and Voodoo is the same company. And he would always drive over to Santa Cruz. And then Hans, one of the partners over at Bontrager and Keith, they would do a lot of the engineering for Thai Tech. So there's like a pretty tight knit industry. And then Hans went on to start Santa Cruz bikes. And I remember seeing like so many Santa Cruz bikes, there's a big bike culture. And it's just people that were super into it always were really interesting people. And they were, yeah. they got to literally live their passion. So that was always like a dream of mine to work somehow within the bike industry.
1: Yeah. The Bay area to me is just super cool. I mean, obviously, you know, the Northern end, that's, that's where mountain biking got started. And a lot of those guys are still around, you know, we talked to Tom Ritchie and Gary Fisher and you know, all those guys—they're living legends. I mean, they—they, they, <laughs> they you know, like they are still around. All these guys that were there at the very beginning, and um, to see them still in the area—I'm just so impressed with a lot, all the innovation that comes from the Bay Area, and particularly in our sport as well. You know, people think of like the internet and tech companies, but you know, that's where our sports started, and it seems like, in, at least in the U.S., that's where a lot of the soul of the industry still lies.
0: Yeah, there's still a ton of industry down there. And like up here in the Pacific Northwest, there's a ton too, but people up here don't shout about it quite as loud as people <laughs> in the bay kinda did. Right. Which which is fine. It's just different kind of different styles a little bit. But yeah, that was a cool spot and I'm thankful to have grown up there. It was rad.
1: Yeah. Well, so for people who have seen your videos on YouTube, you know, it's, it's really clear that you have a lot of passion and excitement for mountain biking. I don't think I've ever seen you like not smiling, you know, even (laughs) while we're talking now, like you got a big smile on your face, which is awesome. So what, like, what is your mission? What drives you to produce the types of content that you do?
0: You know, that's a good question. And there's so many different levels to it, man. When you're a kid and you're making, you're like, we're watching, like when you're growing up as a BMX kid and you're watching kind of shreddits for lack of a better word, you know, 45 minute long videos with Pennywise and no effects playing and people just doing the coolest (laughs) stuff on their bike. So that's like your big influence, you know, like the motocross videos. So we would make, kind of try to emulate that in like middle school and high school and stuff and make little shreddits, Mm -hmm. which is fun. You're kind of capturing you know you're capturing your energy and what you can do and it's fun to try to imitate that a bit and then through college i started shooting the, the collegiate races i would just check out a video camera from the av department oh cool and then i would film as much as i could from the race and then the race was saturday sunday i would edit Monday and Tuesday, instead of doing all my homework. And then at the <laughs> Wednesday club meeting, I would try to have a video ready for the club from the race that would show like everyone that raced. Oh, cool. Yeah. People got stoked kind of seeing the whole race weekend again. And they, when they saw themselves riding, they got so pumped. And when something cool happened that actually told someone out of a story, like everyone would cheer for it. So right. that was really cool. And I kind of, you know, over the next few years, I didn't really make many videos at all. I didn't really publish them, but I, I made a few on my own. And then a few years ago, like the Tahoe thing came out and that was again, kind of a shred it. I was just, I've been racing for so long and doing well at it, but I just had all this pent up energy and wanted to kind of send it a little bit. And that new bike came out. That was such a good bike. And I was so excited. And then I loved riding that trail, Mr. Toads up in Tahoe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we were kind of capturing that, how much fun it is to just ride fully pinned on that trail. And then that was Mm -hmm. kind of set the stage for the next whole bunch, but it's kind of been there, done that with that style of thing. So now I'm more into trying to learn how to tell a story and try to communicate better through, you know, that whole medium. I'm I'm a terrible communicator. I was was an English major in school because I knew if I went down the engineering kind of wormhole, which I was supposed kind of supposed to do, I guess you could say, yeah, yeah, I just I, uh, I was so bad at communicating. I knew I'd never really get ahead in life. Never, you know, I wanted to be more dynamic than that. So, like, no, no hate to engineers. That's awesome that they can do that, but. Yeah. I'm glad I I tried something a little bit different.
1: Yeah. That's interesting. You pushed yourself to do the thing that you didn't feel like you were as good at. So that's, that's a good skill to have for sure.
0: I guess
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's a good way to look at things.
0: It's not conducive to getting ahead, I guess, but, uh, it's been really rewarding. So anyhow, now I'm more into learning how to try to tell how to, how to tell a story with video and how to express something really cool. And Lately, I've been thinking about why make these videos. And I've got kind of a cool platform now that's built up over the years. And I want to use mm-hmm. it to actually grow the sport a little bit. So when you go out and make a cool video of yourself riding some cool destination, like that's fun to watch, sure. But, you know, like we've, we've all seen plenty of that. And it would be really cool. Like the sport is only so big and it's kind of... You know, it's—I don't want to say it's fleeting, but if it's not growing, it can totally shrink. I mean, we see other sports that got huge and kind of faded out. Look at rollerblading, for instance.
1: (laughs) What happened to rollerblading? That's a good question.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I don't want that to happen to mountain biking. So I see like these advocacy groups up here in the Northwest. They're doing great things, and it's like, man, I wish all advocacy groups were this well supported and this rad. And Mm -hmm. there's—I've seen a handful of misguided ones over the years, and I've seen once I moved up here, I was like, wow, there's some really good ones here. This could be super legit. Yeah. So I've kind of realized that I can kind of use what I've built now to actually make supporting these advocacy groups more of like a key tenant of what I'm up to. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm really pumped to to head this direction. And I wanted to do more of this last year. And it was hard when I had like sponsorship deals for like riding videos of me. And I was trying to like tell other people's stories a bit through that. <laughs> yeah. So I had to split the difference a bit and I'm still like trying to find the right balance, but yeah, that's kind of, that's really what inspires me now is to help grow the sport through interesting content.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. Right. I mean, I think that's kind of the evolution of mountain bike videos too. I mean, in the early days, you know, the VHS days, it was all about the shredded and just super rad riding. And, you know, everybody still loves watching that stuff, but I think People like you are figuring out that it's a really powerful medium. I mean, it can be really inspirational and telling the stories of these mountain bike clubs and advocacy groups that are pushing for trails and, you know, doing a lot of cool stuff for the sport. They need a voice. And yeah, I'm sure that video can do a good job of helping people understand that and maybe, you know, putting some more wind in their sails via, you know, fundraising or just getting people involved or, or whatever the case may be.
0: Or just letting people know that they exist and they're doing actually really cool stuff. I mean, yeah, marketing is so huge and, you know, these advocates, I was so impressed in Northwest Arkansas that they had a whole separate kind of division set up to promote and market the trails and the advocates didn't have to worry about marketing because that was handled by somebody else. And in other places, they don't have that set up yet. So it's like, well, maybe I can help them get the ball rolling a bit. So,
1: Yeah, that's a really great idea. So like you said, and you know, your YouTube videos have taken you all over the place to ride some pretty amazing locations. What's your favorite spot to ride?
0: Oh man, that's a, (laughs) that's a great question. I really like riding in the Northwest here, getting across the border up into Canada. The terrain up there is so good. And it's really similar down here too. But once you kind of get across the border, there's a few more cedars, the hemlock trees and all that. It's a little bit steeper and rougher. Yeah. I really like it when in the trails, kind of a puzzle and you have to use all your wits to figure out how to get through it smoothly and safely. Yeah. So like, you know, traditional hiking trails that, you know, not bike built trails, like just old school trails are often my favorite. And there's not that many of those left in this day and age, but they're definitely <laughs> out there. So, right. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff I'm most into.
1: Yeah. What, what's like one trail that stands out or one or two that stand out that you've seen so far, maybe one that's like really creative or, or just different from a lot of the stuff that's out there.
0: Oh man, there's some good creative stuff back in Santa Cruz. I've got a friend that has a bunch of acreage up in the mountains above town and he's built some really cool stuff, switchbacks that loop back around themselves and stuff and just
1: <laughs> nice.
0: You know, utilizing the actual contours of the terrain with the trail really well. Yeah. Up in Whistler, there's some amazing stuff. Trail names are escaping me. A lot of the stuff from the EWS race course back in like 2013, 14, 15, that stuff was real fun. Oh, yeah. Like Billy's Epic right across the way. Cashmere to Kush, that was a great run. That was super fun. Hitting bomb holes and such, but then Mm kind of tight in a few sections. That was cool.
1: Yeah. Well, what's your local riding scene in in Bellingham? Like, I've heard a lot of good things. Evergreen Mountain Bike Alliance is super active there. And what's that like, though? I mean... I think you said it too. The trails there are not as well known, maybe as other places, but they're certainly world-class trails, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, I could be happy riding in the state of Washington only for the rest of my life. I mean, there's so much here. <laughs> wow. Evergreen has done a ton and they're not the only group in town by any means. So here in Bellingham, there's not much with Evergreen. It's mostly the WMBC, oh, okay, which is the local group. And they've done amazing things. They have an office downtown and They've got a a full-time trails director. He's a good buddy of mine, Eric Brown. And seeing the stuff that they've done and like the average legal public trail here on Galbraith Mm -hmm. is so much better than like the gnarliest, like some of the gnarliest off map secret stuff or whatever that I've written in other places. So it's like, wow, this is really cool that they're accepting this as they're using Whistler design standards as their trail design standards rather than something else. I don't know what the other standards are, but
1: yeah. Well, how are they able to do that? I mean, because I think a lot of people would enjoy that kind of stuff, but it seems like there must be barriers to making that happen.
0: You know, I don't know the process well enough to say like how they're able to get away with what they do. And there's nothing that's sketchy or whatnot, but if you build a a gnarly trail with you know 30 40 foot jumps on it and you rate it as double black and you have a sign at the beginning this is an advanced trail with big features on it I mean it seems like you're covering your (laughs) yourself as well as you can there and that's kind of how they do it so and there's so much to ride here it's not like it's just one trail in town there's stuff literally for my two-year-old daughter has trails to ride there's so much to ride it's such a good variety.
1: Nice. Yeah. And I mean, there must be a lot of really good riders in town as well for those trails to, to get built and then to actually get used.
0: Yeah, there's a huge, I mean, the riding population here is it's massive. And it's when you drive around town, the number of not just like bikes and bike racks you see, but like really well set up gnarly enduro bikes. It's like, whoa, this is a big thing here. (laughs) That was kind of, last year I started, that's kind of what, I don't know, maybe two years ago when we first moved to town and I kind of saw that that's what's normal here. Like the average rider here is pretty experienced and that was kind of like, wait a second, we can have mountain biking as like a mainstream activity. As long as we do it right, it can be super cool.
1: Yeah, very cool. So while we're talking about mountain bike videos and YouTube videos, Matt Miller, one of our staff writers and I were talking about your videos and he was just commenting on like the quality, like everything is just so like crisp and, you know, the colors are awesome. Like how, what do you have any tips for people who are making their own mountain bike videos?
0: Well, thank thank you. That's awesome to hear. <laughs> uh, I rarely get to see the stuff in its full quality because I'm not able to edit in that full resolution. So <laughs> I'm editing. It's all pixelated. You know, it's really just about being familiar with your stuff. I don't even think the gear matters that much. If you have a good story to tell and if you have good writing to show, like look at Danny McCaskill's breakout mixtape from 10 years ago. Like the quality of that is not all that amazing, but the writing is so good. Mm-hmm. So I've definitely had times where I've lost sight of the you know, like what the content is and focus too much on the year and, you know, the actual product would suffer. Yeah. So I would say first and foremost, have a plan of something good to actually shoot or a good story to tell. That's way more important than it being sharp or crisp. People will forgive a lot. And then I'd say the audio is the next most important over the picture. And uh, when you're actually using stuff, just the more time you have doing it, the more experience you have, the better you're going to get. Right. So... If I only had an iPhone to shoot with, like, I can't say it would be a good looking video, but I hope I could still make video people would want to watch. Is, they're so good these in this day and age. I mean,
1: yeah, no, yeah, there's nothing. I wouldn't be surprised if you said you shot it all on iPhone because yeah, some of those can be really good for sure. So you've worked in a few different like sales and marketing positions in the mountain bike industry over the years. So I'm going to ask you sort of a businessy question here. What are some of the key drivers to product adoption when we're talking about mountain bike gear?
0: You know, what I don't have is a perspective of outside the industry. So I can't compare it to other industries in the world Mm -hmm. because to me, it's the only thing I know. But um, if something new is coming out that's pretty innovative, it has to be good for it to actually catch on and stand the test of time. Yeah, And there's definitely trends that come and go. But I think for the most part, there's definitely plenty of trends going. But I think back to like 2004, 2005, my friends and I were all riding single chain rings on our bikes. We had 160 travel forks, you know, the Fox 36 had come out, Mm -hmm. the widest handlebars we could get, which were like 710, 720. We were all running pretty short stems and, you know, two, three, two, four tires is pretty standard. Mm -hmm. And then here we are a handful of years later and that general template 15 years later that general template still kind of stands so yeah things have to be good and then at the same time the average riding the riding population has to be ready for it so it's this weird thing of like two lines of like really good stuff heading up one direction and then the general riding population being ready for it Mm -hmm. heading the other way so They have to intersect at the right point for something to really take off. I don't think there's like weird conspiracies in the bike industry to just push baloney products. Every now and then something comes out that some group of riders will deem as Mm baloney, but then other people will think is totally valid. So that definitely can happen we've had such a road influence in mountain biking for so long. We're kind of finally getting away from that and getting into more of like a moto, more downhill. Basically people that grew up kind of like people like me have kind of made their way into the industry that don't just have like a cross country and road background. So now these more aggressive bikes are becoming adopted as the norm and, it doesn't just happen overnight, but it's a slow process. And yeah, I'm sure some folks that digger up on the roadside are not happy with running a single chain ring and not having that, <laughs> you know, the big ring to get across town. And they're probably not happy about the new riding upright geometry, but you know, a lot of other people are happy. Yeah.
1: And the, the bigger tires.
0: Yeah. Well, I think the two, three to two, five size is kind of going to continue to be the dominant size for a long time, mm-hmm. but yeah, the two sixes and two eights have definitely made their mark as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, you touched on a a lot of really good points. I mean, there are definitely, there are like those cynics out there, the people who tend to complain when new stuff comes out and say, oh, this is all like just hype and marketing. But then I feel like those same people would agree that, bikes today are way better than they were 10 years ago or 20 years ago and like you said a lot of that groundwork was laid back then in terms of the sizing and standards on stuff but the products today man they just keep getting better and better even if there are a few like products here and there that are kind of like what like what are they doing with that or, or like no that's that's just hype.
0: You know, the standards haven't really even changed all that much. I mean, chain line hasn't really changed. I mean, I've got this nineteen ninety-five Ibis Mojo hardtail in my garage, and I put a brand new Shimano XT M eight thousand Grupo on it. I mean, like oh, wow. <laughs> that bike could it's old enough to, to buy a beer at the bar.
1: <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> and this modern stuff all fits on it. You know, it's hard to find a straight steer fork. And Headset, but it's not impossible, but that's really the only thing on that entire bike that's like a little bit tricky to find. I mean, yeah, everything bottom brackets haven't really changed drive i mean it's amazing how much hasn't really changed, and sure, you could go nuts and build a bike with more of the new style stuff on it, but mm-hmm. you don't necessarily have to, so yeah it's it's an interesting world we're in right now,
1: yeah, for sure. So you talked a little bit about riding motorcycles in your past, and I think you still ride motorcycles a little bit, don't you?
0: I try to. <laughs> yeah, It's been so snowy and icy here the last uh, six weeks or so. I've been off the bike a bit, but um, yeah, I always wanted dirt bikes and could never really do it. Parents weren't into it. I always took friends' loaner bikes out whenever I could as a kid. And through college, whenever friends had a loaner bike, I would always try and go riding with them. So yeah, it's always been something I've been super interested in, but never quite able to get a hundred percent into. And then I finally bought my own first bike in 2008 and got pretty heavy into it, like riding three times a week for the next year. Or so yeah, I was super into it, raced a bunch of hair scrambles, uh, a bunch of Enduros and stuff. And, you know, as normal, like did terrible and all that. And, um, <laughs> Yeah. I try to ride once every week or two now. Uh, weather has been a factor this last few weeks, but, um, (laughs) yeah, the moto thing, I just, it's so dynamic mountain biking. I've done it for so long. It's super fun, but the moto is a great outlet, a great way to take a break from the bike. And it's, it crosses over so much. I think it's, if I could only do one thing to train for mountain biking, it would probably be ride the dirt bike off-road on, on single track.
1: Huh. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask you is if that you think that helps you as a mountain biker to be able to get out on a motorcycle and, and try different things.
0: It definitely helps a ton, but it takes a long time to get to the point where it will actually be a benefit. Yeah, because it is. You have to figure out so much of the new mechanics of shifting and the clutch and everything and having the bike have the power instead of you have the power. So
1: Right. So as someone who rides both mountain bikes and motorcycles, what's your take on electric mountain bikes?
0: You know, I've never actually ridden one. Um,
1: (laughs) Impossible.
0: I've never actually tried. I've tried electric bikes around town and I tried kind of like a hybrid electric bike and tried to pedal it up a steep hill and it couldn't do it. I'm fairly proficient on the dirt bike, you know, I have 50 horsepower right at, right at the tip of the finger with the clutch lever there. And Mm -hmm. like, I wouldn't think twice about that tiny little hill on the dirt bike. And then here's this electric bike and it wouldn't, it couldn't, I just can't believe how slow it was, (laughs) (laughs) but people love them. So I'm sure there's, there's a reason why, I mean, I don't know.
1: Yeah. Well, is there a reason why you haven't tried one yet?
0: Um, well, they're fully illegal on like all these trails here in town and super hated on. So they have not been adopted. Um, I don't even know where I could go to try a demo bike at this point. Mm -hmm. So it kind of reminds me of when freeride bikes came out in like 2000, 2001 and everyone was like, Oh my goodness, this is going to ruin our sport. (laughs) And then you see this and it's like, you know, if we were to actually embrace this and fully get behind it, we could grow all kinds of mountain biking so much as a result. Right. Because if someone who's never even thought about mountain biking, here's like the Troy Lee of Troy Lee designs is infamous for having got tons of moto guys into e-biking and then they get really stoked on the e-biking thing. And then they get curious about riding a regular, an acoustic bike Mm -hmm. and then they get hooked. Right. So if we were, you know, if we were not such a <laughs> curmudgeon-y, grouchy bunch, we could totally use this as a boon to grow our regular stuff, but there's so many just negative Nancy's and people that are afraid of actually trying something like that that I don't think it's gonna happen. So there's that.
1: Yeah, there's definitely two sides to that. You know, I mean, like you said, there's there's a lot of evidence that it can grow the sport and then I guess I guess a lot of people are scared that there's a risk it'll hurt the sport in terms of advocacy. But yeah, nobody I guess nobody knows the future exactly. And so I'm inclined to let let people figure it out and let's just see what happens.
0: Yeah, I don't have amazingly huge opinions beyond the fact that I think it could be a boon if we were to fully embrace it, but without a full embracement, it'll just be a weird, awkward
1: thing. Right. Was that something that Ibis is looking at in terms of mountain biking? I know Santa Cruz has said that they're not Interested in electric mountain bikes, but I mean, is this something you could see other brands embracing? I mean, not to give away anything, but...
0: You know, I have no idea what Ibis is up to in terms of new bikes. I'm just fully a sponsored rider at this point. And that's kind of where my relationship ends with them. So that would be a great question for those for those dudes. I don't know if what their deal is whatsoever on on e bikes here in Washington. I haven't seen Transition work on an e bike at all. I haven't seen. Mm-hmm. I think Kona actually has one out now. I've never seen one on the trails, but they do have one. I don't know what evil is going to be doing. So I haven't seen any evils in the out and about with a battery. on them. So yeah, I don't know.
1: Yeah. Washington seems to be an interesting place too. I mean, they were one of the first few States to come out with rules specifically for electric mountain bikes, basically banning them on trails from my understanding, uh, which is kind of opposite of what California and Colorado did. So we've talked about motorcycles and all kinds of biking stuff. What other activities do you enjoy outside of mountain biking?
0: Well, definitely riding my dirt bike, but um, trail running is huge. I think that's one of the best ways to get better at mountain biking because it just builds balance, coordination, stamina, all that. So trail running is huge. I really like yoga. I wish I could do more yoga. It's tough with the baby at home to sneak out, you know, in the evening for an hour and a half to go to a class. So yeah, but yeah, I try to do yoga at least once a week. I would love to do it two or three, but not right now. And then I try to go to the gym at least twice a week. That's, that's important. I don't really enjoy it per se, but I do enjoy the payoff when you're on the trail and you can throw your bike around how you want to.
1: Right. Yeah. That's interesting how all of those activities sort of, they tie back into mountain biking or, or I guess you could say mountain biking ties into those activities. It's it's an interesting arrangement. So how do you prioritize time to do those things when mountain biking is such a big part of your job?
0: Oh, man. (laughs) Man, time management's so tough. That's always the hardest thing of anyone who's kind of wearing many different hats. Mm -hmm. Um, I have to focus first and foremost on getting my content kind of out and published, and I'll definitely let my riding skills suffer in order to get a project done on time. Mm -hmm. I would way rather meet like a proper deadline and follow through on my commitment than sneak in one more ride when the dirt is just absolutely perfect because... (laughs) you know what, I only have this chance right now. So I'm going to totally just dive in 100% much as I can. Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of work first and foremost. And then when I get to ride, I often think about what have I not been up to lately? What do I need to work on? So hmm. this winter, I realized I hadn't got to hit many big jumps over the last little bit. So I was just sessioning our local dirt jumps every chance I had. Oh, ah, cool. And that helps a ton with the rest of your bike handling. You can put your bike on the trail much more precisely into the line you want when you're familiar with the airtime and nosing into landings. So, yeah. And then trying to work on the trials stuff here and there. I, I try to keep my trials bike. I just got one in 2017, my first ever trials bike. I paid retail for it, got it from the UK. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sweet. Yeah,
0: and I'm trying to hop around on that more for this year and just practice more silly stuff. Last year, I was doing it quite a bit.
1: Yeah, cool. Well, yeah, I mean, and that ties into what you were saying earlier about you know, the, the path you chose with your education is kind of f- figuring out where your blind spots are, or the things you need to improve and then going after those things. So what other ways do you like work on keeping your mountain bike skills sharp and continue to progress in your riding?
0: You know, when I was a kid getting real into mountain biking, like in the college years, I would do skills drills a couple of times a week. It was just, hmm. and on the dirt bike, I still do a ton of skills drills. Cause I'm, you know, I've only got a decade of experience on it and I'm proficient and all that, but there's still like, there's still, you can still have more noticeable improvements so much quicker. So yeah, I've been slacking on my skills, uh, routines on the mountain bike lately, but, um, <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> do you enjoy doing that stuff? I mean, is it, is it a chore for you to go out and spend time or?
0: Well, no, when I was doing it a ton and like I was doing a lot of skills drills for a long time, you know, like sprint at a box and then slam on your brakes at the last possible second and not hit that box. So like practice like the, the least amount of distance needed for, for braking, so get your late braking technique dialed. That was really fun. Practicing bunny hops, like just take two pedal strokes, bunny hop over a cereal box and then five pedal strokes and then try and stop before the next one. Trying to set up figure eights, like all kinds of little obstacle courses. I just, I was, I really enjoyed that. And when you're new at something and you start to see the payoff immediately on the trail the next day, it's way more gratifying and it's, you want to keep doing it more. So yeah. I, lately I've been so strapped for, you know, I've got a wife, I've got a family and a baby and everything and mm-hmm. working. So it's a lot harder to go out and spend two hours a week practicing specific skills. I wish I could. Yeah. Um, the payoff isn't quite as obvious as it used to be. So that makes it harder to dedicate the time for that now. Right. But that's where like the dirt bike and the trials bike come in. Cause I can still make some pretty good gains pretty fast. Cause I have less experience on both of those.
1: Yeah. Well, how do you know how to do those drills or what those drills are? I mean, the the two that you just mentioned sound really great, like sprinting up to an obstacle and trying to stop in time and then doing the bunny hop stuff. I mean, how do you, did you just come up with those on your own or did you have someone sort sure of teach you those?
0: Uh, it's 100% just guesswork on my own part. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like I'm hopping on my brakes real hard at the last second. I think that's the way to go fast. <laughs> so let's try simulating that. And i you know, I was, I was always just making those up on the fly based off of riding experience, always self-taught or whatever. And then I took some classes on how to ride dirt bikes more effectively in like 2010, 2011. Okay. And uh, yeah, and, and those classes did a whole bunch of drills, like just cornering drills and a few braking drills too, like practice this hill using only your front brake, only your rear brake, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, this is very similar to what I did on a mountain bike. And I got a few different ideas from that. But yeah, sadly, I haven't really focused on skills drills in probably three or four years now, but I have some ideas for this year that I'll share with everyone once I'm a little bit more set up Yeah, and I think I'm going to start practicing some more skills. So stay tuned for that.
1: Okay, cool. Well, yeah, speaking of what's coming up, what do you have planned for yourself for this year?
0: (laughs) This year is going to be huge. So I'm doing a monthly series. It's called Local Loam, and that's where I go to some cool spot that's got a... A unique advocacy situation, so like a, it's a very positive series. So I'm not going to go someplace where mountain biking is just a total flop. I want to go places where it's, it's a success story. Mm-hmm. So I went to Tucson, Arizona, where Mount Lemmon is federally managed, and uh, that's the BLM under the Department of Agriculture, and did a little story feature with that group there, Torca. And I went to Austin, Texas, and did a little feature there with a couple of the trail groups, and that'll come out in a few weeks here at the end of March. Okay. And I'm planning; I've got like ten more of these episodes currently in the works. So I don't want to give away all my locations and everything. So stay tuned. But um, yeah, yeah, the whole idea is to go some cool spot where some advocacy group has either overcome some great difficulty or whatever, or um, has had some massive success through some unique strategy or whatnot. So.
1: Yeah. Texas seems like an unlikely spot. I'm interested to see your video about that because yeah, it seems like the state is, it's just so much like private land in the state that there doesn't seem to be a lot of opportunity to build trails there.
0: Exactly. And that's one of the main tenants that we talk about in the video. And I haven't seen the video yet because we're still editing it right now, (laughs) (laughs) but I've got the rough outline done up and everything and some song choices. So it's, it's coming along.
1: Cool. And then what else are you doing beyond the uh, local loam series? You have, sounds like you have some skills videos perhaps in mind.
0: Yeah. Once a month I do a skills, like a riding tutorial video. And I just post those on my Patreon page. Those are kind of cool. Cause I don't really like everyone learns in a different way. And for me, like not being all that physically coordinated, like I have to figure things out mentally <laughs> to actually be able to do them. Like I have to understand the physics behind it Oh, interesting. And then often it's like, I need to figure out a mental trick to make it really happen. Mm -hmm. Like racing is like 90% mental and like 10% physical or something. Like it's way more, if you get on the starting line, knowing you're going to win, then you're far more likely to win than if you're just like, well, let's see what will (laughs) happen. So with like that kind of a background, my whole idea with learning skills is like learning the thought process of what you need to think about and the reasons why you might have to do something. So that's been my take on that. I do the the monthly skills videos, do the lo- local loam series. Uh, once a week, I upload a video to my YouTube channel. Oftentimes it'll just be a, like a tech video. Mm-hmm. I'm doing a once a month podcast with Jensen USA called Kendall versus Kendall. That's been real fun and that's growing quite a bit. Nice. And uh, yeah, I'm updating all my my regular social media. So I'm pretty busy with the current <laughs> uh, handful of things.
1: Yeah. Very cool. What are your industry predictions for this coming year? I mean, you've got your hand on the pulse of a lot of different things on bikes and on advocacy and just all the cool things that are happening in mountain biking. So what do you see happening this year and, you know, maybe the next five years?
0: You know, I've been so focused on what I've been up to. I I haven't really been thinking about the industry as a whole as much as I should. But um I think the in general the the marketing realm is going to be changing quite a bit as riders continue to build like their own social media platforms and stuff and I think that's going to start to affect the whole marketing angle of companies pretty substantially. I think land use issues will continue to be kind of uh, important. So, yeah, in terms of the actual bike product tech stuff, man, everyone loves to talk about bike parts and stuff. It's so hard to predict what's happening next. I think Tire technology has still has some room to, to quickly grow. I think we have a lot of new potential to find there. And uh, man, drivetrains are so good. Brakes are so good. It's been really fun riding that Trust the Message fork. Yeah, now I've got DW Link, not just in the back, but in the front too. So <laughs> yeah, that's been a real exciting thing. And I, the way that those guys have put that thing together, I wouldn't be surprised if that thing becomes a more more common item to see on the trails and it'll be interesting to see if other people start to imitate that as well and not necessarily imitate but make their own linkage style dynamic offset fork because I think there's a lot of a lot of potential to be gained from a setup like that so that could very well become more normal and then frame materials and manufacturing techniques like what Gorilla Gravity just announced I think there could be a lot of potential in something like that if that all holds true I mean it's still brand new but
1: yeah. Interesting.
0: You know, there's a few mountain bikers out there that I've always watched ride that I've been like, wow, they're really good. So like watching Danny McCaskill ride, that guy's so dialed and he's had such a consistent style that has just improved over the years. That's been really cool to see. Chris A. Kriggs, just pure energy on the bike has been really cool to see his complete, just like his control of the bike is just amazing seeing what Jeff Linoski done back in, especially back in the day and his like new world disorder parts, Mm -hmm. combining BMX and trials to such a different, no one's ever really replicated what Linoski was doing 10, 15 years ago. So that's pretty wild. Mm -hmm. Seeing guys like Barakloth, like 360 sixtying off a really big stuff, like, Holy moly. That's, (laughs) (laughs) that's the easy way to just break yourself. Are you kidding me? So yeah, there's a lot of good riders out there and it's cool seeing the different directions. They're all kind of ended up going and, That's been that's really cool to watch, and then it's cool seeing more racers kind of get into the content world. It's been cool seeing what Brendan Fairclough's been up to, and the whole Fest series. That's such a rad idea. I think it's really cool that how they've been able to grow that and make it something super legit. Just kind of organically taking the bull by the horns, like kind of just learn by doing. I think that whole movement is pretty darn cool. So yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, it's it's awesome, like you say, to see all these riders that can do amazing stuff. I mean. I mean, YouTube is just, it's huge because now you can see that stuff, you know, almost in real time, you can see what people are up to and they're inspiring other people to do the same thing. And it just kind of builds on itself. And that's really cool. And, and obviously you're a big part of that as well, like inspiring people and, you know, growing the industry, which is awesome to see.
0: Thanks. I hope people are into it.
1: Well, thank you too, for joining us on the podcast, uh, We'll definitely be following you on YouTube, uh, Instagram at Jeff Kendall Weed and at JeffKendallWeed.com. Thanks again for joining us, Jeff.
0: Thanks for having me. It was an honor to be here.
1: Well, if you're enjoying the Tracks podcast, be sure to rate us in iTunes and the Google Play Store. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace.